You're listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. This week, we talk with Darla Moore. She achieved national prominence at a time when women did not generally hold positions of leadership on Wall Street. Thank you, Darla Moore, for hosting us at your home here. Um, you grew up in Lake City, and then you had your career mostly in New York and came back. Why did you come back? Oh, goodness. Uh, I came back, in a, in a word, is because this place where we're sitting today was the happiest place of my entire life memories. This was my grandmother and grandfather's home. It was originally the family's home place, originally when the family first came into these parts. But when I was a, a little girl, I spent a lot of time out here with my grandparents. This was a working, primarily tobacco farm when I was growing up. So it was the place of all love and all happiness on the face of the earth. So, in a word, that's why I came back. Tell us a bit about your growing up here and, and what it was like that you mentioned a cocoon of, of a love. A cocoon of love and adoration and terrible pampering and <laughs> awful, <laughs> awful favoring of, of being the first grandchild and the first, and being the girl. And I had wonderful grandparents. They were marvelous people. They were unusual because this was very, very rural still is, but at, at that time it was extremely rural. All row crops and cotton, tobacco, corn, and they yet were educated people, which was very unusual uh, at that time, and particularly in these parts, and by that I mean college educated. So they had a different, a little different take on the world and on life, but still very, very traditional. And this was an extremely traditional Southern, Southern upbringing. This was my grandparents' farm. As I said, I lived in town with my parents, and I loved the activity of the farm. It was so busy all the time, busy, busy, busy. And uh, to this day, I thrill at the idea of being out here when there's lots of work going on. Work, 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 work. So I guess the question is then, you went to the University of South Carolina and then went to Washington, D.C. for graduate school. Why did you ever leave? Well, my views today have uh, evolved, let's say, over the, over the decades. Uh, when you came up here, it was marvelous as a child, but as you got older and got into teenage years and started to feel your rebelliousness and want to see the world, I had a, as deep a desire to get out of the South as I had for anything else. The passion of my life from 13 on was how quickly can I leave the South? Because of the things that would have been going on at the time, but just pure ambition, pure ambition. I wanted to see the world, and I wanted to be part of a bigger world. Where did this pure ambition come from, do you think? I don't know if I know. I've, it, I'm not even, I'm not sure. I think a lot of it is innate. You, you, you're really born with a desire to do and go, but. I think fundamentally what it is is curiosity from a, just a psychological perspective, deep, deep curiosity. 
that deep curiosity, was it satisfied then when you moved to Washington and then ultimately to New York and yeah, Wall Street? No, it was a never-ending, it was a never-ending flood of it because everywhere you got, you were curious to, to go to the next place. I wanted to go to Washington. Uh, I was interested in politics at the time. My interest in that has diminished considerably <laughs> over the years. <laughs> but at the time, that was my ticket out of the South, actually. And ironically, was going to Washington at the sponsorship of Strom Thurmond. That's how I went to and you Washington. Were working as an aide? As, yeah, as, as started as an intern and then went back up when I graduated from Carolina and went to the Republican National Committee. And Strom Thurmond was, I think you would call that my sponsor. And that was my, my ticket out of the South, which is a great irony today. <laughs> and then move us then to your business career, because you did move big, yeah. big change from big politics change. to business. Um, I went through several political cycles in Washington with the Republican National Committee, to and including Reagan's first presidential election. And the cycles, of the every two-year cycle of politics became evident to me pretty quickly that that was a pretty unstable way of living, sort of feast or famine uh, every two years. And I kind of figured out, and I was very young, I don't know how I figured it out, but I said, you know, if you don't get more education and move into something else, you, you could find yourself starving to death. <laughs> I said, this could be a very unstable life. So I ended up going back to business school at George Washington, which was in D.C., and uh, got an MBA, and then said, okay, I knew nothing about business. I was never particularly interested in business. I didn't know what a balance sheet was when I went to business school. So we're talking very rudimentary knowledge of what I was doing at the time, but it sounded good. I figured I'd find something to do if I got an MBA. And did you, did you like it at that I, point? Did you get into I, there it? There were some things I liked. It was more just powering through to get the degree and the credential, the credentials so I could get into another field. And it was a pretty broad, advanced degree. You can do a lot of things. And today I'd recommend anybody to have it. I don't care what you're doing. I look back on it and I am amazed how profoundly ignorant I was about the world and what to do and how to do it. But you learned pretty quickly. And then on to Wall Street, Chemical Bank. Yeah, I went, yeah. I, um, after I got my MBA, I, I went to New York and I went into banking, which is also a very broad field at the time. And it was still the days where they would take in newly minted MBAs from around the country into training programs. And then they would train them in various areas of banking, and then you would be assigned into a certain area in the bank. Was That's kind of st how it started. Tough starting out, especially as, as a woman. Ironically, again, by the time I was getting my MBA, it was moving towards a 50-50 gender split. And when I got to Chemical in New York, the, we were, there were 33 in my class of MBAs. There were 33 of us. It was about 50-50 also. There was one unique characteristic of my training class at, at Chemical Bank. We were from all over the country, schools from all over the country. There was one person from a rural background. And that was That you. would be me. <laughs> we had some from... Yeah, I mean, we had some from Alabama, but they were from Montgomery. Yeah. And we had them from Texas, but they were from Dallas. 
but nobody was from a rural background. So what that made sort of challenges me. did that pose? <laughs> it made me unique among the group, and I had a lot better stories than they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must have worked because you were the first woman to be featured on the cover of Fortune magazine and were named among the 50 most powerful women in business. This is in the 1990s. Uh, they called you the toughest babe in business. What a moniker, right? <laughs> so what led to that? How, how did you get to that point? It was um, part ambition, mainly luck. Yeah, luck does play. Don't, I don't underestimate the value of luck. But I had wanted to be in the part of finance at the time that was very exciting, very active, and it was a, it was a period in, in, in this country that was called the leverage buyout yeah. era. And that's where all the action was. And for somebody that was ambitious, that's where you wanted to be because it was just, it was the most exciting place. There was not a chance in this world a female was going to play in that world. It was just off limits. There were, women were not, they were more and more moving into the financial arena, but the, the roles they were playing were not always at the head of the table. How about that? They weren't at the head of the table. And, that part of finance it was maybe dominated by sort of mainstream white shoe investment banks and corporate banks and no women. How did you break into that world? Well, they opened a gap as wide as Niagara Falls by over leveraging America. They put too much debt on the companies in America because of the leverage they put on these companies when they would be in the acquisition side of the business. They were buying and selling companies, and at the time, they were doing it on valuations that were never going to be sustain sustainable during an economic downturn, but they kept doing it. We've been there a couple more cycles since this happened. They just kept leveraging and leveraging and leveraging, and finally the dam broke, and it just all collapsed. And during this time, when they wouldn't let me play in the sandbox, I went into an area which was almost the opposite of what the exciting part of, of that time was. And it was working with companies that were, in, that were troubled. They were in trouble. They were in financial trouble. They either had a product problem. They had a debt problem. I called them bruised companies. And working, and that's a very specific, very specialized area of finance. And it was not held in great regard because everybody was working with, you know, the great and the big and the never-ending growing companies. And when they collapsed financially, I had developed a credibility and a product that was designed to work with the companies that were bankrupt. And then I found myself one day in America, corporate America was pretty much bankrupt. I had the product and I had the credibility, both inside my institution and outside to deliver the product that now all these big corporate giants needed. So you could bring them back up then? Yeah, I could just keep them, I could stabilize them. And all the guys that wouldn't let me play, you know, men are mostly, men are the deal guys and were the deal guys. Women just didn't play that role until this happened. And that I happened to be in the role of the one that could deliver the financings to the companies once they blew up. And so I was the deal guy of that period. 
But why did Fortune call you the toughest babe? That was later. Okay, so I do this, and I do this for a decade or more. And then left the banking and began doing the in, more on the investment side. And on the investment side, again, the in, investment targets of the time weren't that far from what I had been doing because you targeted bruised assets or undervalued assets or contrarian assets or out of favor assets. There wasn't as big a shift from banking to in, on the investment side as it might appear. I, this time, after my bank, I married a guy from Texas who was a very prominent financer and investor himself, Richard Rainwater. When we married, he wanted, he was, he was some older than me and he felt like he had, he was quite prominent. He was iconic, in fact. And he said, you know, I've got enough money. Why don't we just quit and go have fun? I can't even believe I'm, I can even get that out of my mouth. <laughs> it wasn't in your oh my God. plan at that point. I can't believe I can choke that out of my mouth. And I said, Richard, I'm, I'm at the peak of my, he'd done lots and lots of stuff. I'd done a good bit, but I still had a lot of gas in the tank. And I said, I can't do that. I said, let's go keep at it for, for a while. So we did. You did. We did. And we were a very good pair. We were a very good team. We had a lot of complementary skills. We began doing things together, and I would play the role that I was strongest at. And of course, he was extraordinarily capable, so he would do what he did. But in the course of taking over Mesa Petroleum, which was Boone Pickens' company, I was charged with raising the money, the debt that we needed to raise. We had equity that we were going to, Richard and I were going to put in, but a lot of debt had to be raised in order to make the deal happen. Being the banker, I was, of course, the one to, that was my charge, and I should certainly have been able to do a good job of it. So I had to go raise a lot of debt money. In the process of that, Boone Pickens was sort of on a general blacklist of people to, to bank because he had, in his prior life, had they called him what was called a green mailer and today... Big leverage buyout yeah, person, yes, yeah. yes. And so the banks weren't particularly keen to have Boone running a company that they lent to. So to get the money at all, I had to go talk to Boone. See, Richard wasn't good at this. It's controversy, and Richard didn't go anything. <laughs> that was you had that type of job. <laughs> That's right. The back of the broom and the mop and the <laughs> mop bucket and all that. That's how, those were my jobs. Anyway, one of the reasons I ended up on that cover is that deal because I was the one that sent to Boone and said, "You got to go. You got to go. You got to go." Anyone would have said that. To do the deal, that would have had to have been communicated to anyone. But I was female, and that had something to do with that. Really? It had nothing to do with Boone leaving, but when that happened, it had something to do with the recognition and the public. Uh, yeah. Because that just... Yes. That, that just doesn't happen doesn't that happen. often. But he left, and then the company? How did well, the company Yeah, we ended do? up taking over the company, and yeah. he was given a date certain to depart, and mm -hmm. it was... It was negotiated, mm -hmm. and we, it was a very, very, very good investment for us. But that was a hard go there because we had to have financing. In order to get it, he had to leave and, or be willing to set a date for his departure. And I had to get that date. 
but that's tough. And as you say, you must have had that inside you somewhere, that ability. Well, later, years later, you know, Boone died recently yes. at 91. And he was truly an American original. Well, no, I had no hard feelings towards him, or I think he might have had a few towards me. <laughs> I was called one time and asked if I had read his memoirs. He had, some years ago, published a memoir. And I said, well, of course not. Why? Because we, this was Newsweek that called me. And they said, well, we just wondered if you had a comment about the things he said about you. And I said, oh boy, what did he say in his memoirs? I don't know, you might, you'll edit this if it's too raw for the thing. <laughs> but in Boone's <laughs> memoirs, he described me as a wolverine that pisses on anything she can't eat. <laughs> you may have to edit that. <laughs> so guys, I'm a wolverine that pisses we'll on anything. <laughs> I'm a wolverine that pisses on anything she can't eat. That was his description well, that of me like a, a Texas in his uh, uh, saying. in his memoir. Wow. So he was quite wow. a so he quite a character. He was quite a character. But the other thing that landed me on the cover of that was another company that we had a very big position in, which was. Hospital Corp of America, which is the largest for-profit. Richard started that before I met him. He and Rick Scott started Columbia Hospital Corp that then merged with Hospital Corp of America, which Richard also had done the leverage buyout with. And Richard and I worked to, get to merge those two companies together. At some point, I went on the board of the combined companies. But at that time, it, it was large by standards of that time, but today, you know, it's probably three or four times bigger than it was when I was on the board. But we had a uh, controversy. The federal government, well, one day showed up with 500 federal marshals into 50 hospitals and all marched in, took all the records. And there was an issue of reimbursement on Medicare, of Medicare on side. Well, Rick Scott was the founder and chairman and CEO. Uh, Richard and I just were big shareholders, and I sat on the board. When that happened, I felt that you could not have a leader that would behave in a way towards the federal government who's paying 40-plus percent of your bills at the time with any disrespect. And Rick felt that they were harassing the company and that they hadn't done anything wrong and pushed back and pushed back on the feds. And finally, they'd had enough and they showed up with the 500 federal marshals into 50 hospitals. You cannot not cooperate with the federal government. Right, right. And so I went to the other board members and we had to ask, push him out. Those two events, which occurred fairly close to each other by accident, were what landed me on the cover of the magazine. And, and Rick Scott was never charged no, with no, anything? No, no, no. The company was. I, the company paid, I don't, seemed like it was maybe a billion dollars fine. Rick Scott was pushed out. And then he obviously, you know, he went to Florida yes. and he's governor, and now he's senator, senator of Florida. Now, senator Rick but Scott. it was not a happy time in the history of that company. It was just not the way you handled the federal government. And it's ironic, he's sitting there right at the head of the federal right there government. Now. 
But those times, those experiences sound to me that at your heart, you really believe in the company and what needs to be done. Oh, you, you do. You and have you to have be to do what? Passionate. You have you, to be passionate. You have to be passionate about what has to be done. And yes, and that sort of tends to be a trademark. If, yeah, I, if, I, get, if I buy into something, yes. I, I'll lock down pretty hard. Yes. So take us forward now. You're here in Lake City. It's such a different lifestyle. Um, what are your goals and ambitions now as a philanthropist, as someone who is dedicated to this community in so many ways? And all of this happened gradually. This was an iterative process. There's no, there have been no great breaks throughout my life of, okay, I'm gonna stop this and start that and stop this and start that. It's really been just a sort of a, Incremental. A rolling. My life rolling. is sort of rolled. <laughs> I sort of roll through life. I don't, it's, it's just sort of meandering down uh, tributaries and creeks and places to see what feels right. And that's, that's kind of what, how I came about to come back and spending so much time here. And I still spend a lot of time in New York. I have to because I have, you know, boards and friends and investment advisors, and so I, I still spend a lot of time in New York. But the base is here. The base is Lake City. This is my home base, right here. And you have done so much for Lake City. Um, what is your hope with what you've done here? Oh, my hope is to help reinvent what was at one time a prosperous southern small community. And Lake City went the way of every other small town, not only in the South, but in the whole country. And as the demographics changed, the economy changed, you know, industries changed. Um, when I was growing up, Lake City was quite prosperous of the time. It was just extremely busy because it served all the farm farmers in the surrounding areas. So it was a market town. And then with the passage of time, it just it went into decay. and dilapidation like many other small towns and small southern towns. But your investment in art fields, for example, is bringing people into the town and rejuvenating. Yeah, it's extremely complex. What, on the one, on the one hand, it's very simple, but it's also extremely complex to implement. I came back because I, I just love the place. I love the farm. I love the environment, loved my town. It's all romanticized in your mind. Was any of it really like that? Probably not. It's probably all the <laughs> fantasy that I'm living. But it, sure, it registered for me. And looking at Lake City relative to other small towns in America and the world, it was not a blind, okay, I'm going to come back and fix my hometown up. There was a lot of analysis in my own mind about whether it was realistic to even make an attempt because there are many that will never recover and don't have the assets to even begin to recover. And so I had to go through a, a pretty good self, deep self discussion about whether it could really do something. For MBA analysis. It was just, every financial, educational instinct, everything I had in my toolkit, I had to pull out to think about whether this made any sense. Because it had to make sense. You don't want to get into something and have it fail. Deeply analytical. And, and I made some good calls, too. I had to do that. Because you never have 
perfect information upon which to make an investment decision. You got to make a gut call somewhere. But I first looked at the assets. What assets does Lake City have? Does it have any assets? Some places don't. But by assets, I mean we had cute architecture. Our architecture is really cute. We spit and taped it together. We didn't tear it down and build that tacky 1970s stuff. We did some, but not a lot. Our cuteness is 1910, 1920 cuteness. Ramshackled and about to go down, but still cute. You can get there from here. We are accessible. Highway 52 runs right through us. Highway 378 runs right by us. So we got major north-south and east-west highway. We also got I-95 of CSX runs right through Lake City. You look, these are infrastructure assets. So can you do anything infrastructure-wise? Because, all right, so you look at things like that. And then you looked at economic data, retail data. There's a concept called retail leakage, for example, where you look and say, how much money leaves this community that would be spent here but is spent somewhere else because you don't have anything to buy? Mm -hmm. But it's a measure of the economic Potential, uh, yeah, yes. Un mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing we first looked at, it, and the retail leakage out of Lake City was something like $128 million. And we also have always had banks. I think we've got the most banks of any small town in America. I think there are five or six different large banks now. And you looked at that. And then the real strength of the community is that we were, I said earlier, a market town. We weren't a textile town or a single employer town. We owned our land, we produced our commodity, and we made a market to sell it. And it went out of here, it went on a train to New Jersey, or it went on a tobacco basket to the United Kingdom. We were entrepreneurial people, we were market people. And I wouldn't underestimate that on any level, the, qual the character of the people. The entrepreneurship of the people. Of the people. Interesting. And that's black and white, and all of us were together, mm -hmm. pulling the same wagon, and whether we ate or not depended on each other. And diversified, and, so and not diversified. just one single industry. We were a market town, underscore that. All those other things I talked about, data points, are great. But the can you do it part is that one that says the people, what the character or the nature of the people. They weren't hourly wage people. There wasn't one town that everybody worked for that left and the town collapsed. Tremendous difference in psychology. Fascinating. I bet on that. In the end, I bet on that. And then when we got into it, and we started prettying up the town. I made the call, we're gonna fix, we gotta fix the retail first. We gotta look cuter. We gotta look cuter. We gotta have our hair done and you know, <laughs> have our roots done and all the other things that you do. <laughs> so we started fixing up some of the buildings. And the more we did that, then you get people to come and say, my goodness, my goodness, my goodness. And then eventually after doing that for several years, a small group of us got together and said, we've got to have a hook. Okay, we're starting cuting up ourselves and polishing things up, but why would anybody come here? Why would you really come here? So we thought about it. What, why would anybody come here? We had to have a hook. And one of our people said, well, 
there's an art competition in Grand Rapids, Michigan called Art Prize. And when they do that, they do it for like a week, two weeks a year. They have like 250,000 people come to that town, that town, that city. And of course we say, well, we're not Grand Rapids. We are, we're Lake City. <laughs> we're Lake City. But I wonder if we could tailor this, something like this for us. And I started thinking, could we tailor an art competition that would bring a lot of people here that, was, that we could handle? Because we're not Grand Rapids. Anyway, that was the beginning of Art Fields, and it was take the spaghetti noodle and throw it on the kitchen tile and see if it stuck. It stuck. It stuck. So you're happy then with your investments? It, so far, <laughs> Art Fields stuck. And now the town, I don't put on art fields, the town puts on art fields. The whole town, and I mean everybody. Everybody. Everybody, because it takes everybody to put, put it on. It's a very complicated, extremely detailed competition, and everybody has got to pull some part of the weight of carrying art fields. And, and are you getting the people coming in that you 15, hope? 15,000, 20,000, it's amazing. It's amazing. That is amazing. But that's why the whole town has to show up. Nobody <laughs> can sit at home and not help put on art fields. And now you're investing in a college here as well. I ended up over the years thinking through kind of a long-term strategy about if you try to do something like this, which I think the IRS has some term in some of their deduction language which says it's okay if nobody in their right mind would do this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm holding that somewhere in there. This really turned out to be a 30-year plan. Is the way I began to think about it as a 30-year, three-decade plan. If you wanted to reinvent a place whose product is gone forever, but you wanted to hopefully see if there was another shot to become something else but in their own image, you can't come in and write a check and build a library or make a park or contribute to the concert series. Those are wonderful things and they're all part of it, but in the world of change making, real change making, philanthropic check writing is, is wonderful, but that won't make something like this happen. This is extremely complex and you gotta have, have a very long view. And, and that long view is 30 years. Is is including education. Of Absolutely. With the first 10 years, which we just have completed, I, I assume like this year is 18, was probably the end of our first 10 years. And that first was putting ourselves up. The next dec decade is about workforce, jobs, and housing. You're and basically building an economy. It's like being in a vacuum and trying to build your own economy. What we recently finished this year is, we call it the continuum. And we, we built it here in Lake City. And it is a collaboration between my foundation and Francis Marion University and Florence Darlington Tech. And also the school districts in the county and outside of the county. This is the model for what should be done across the state of South Carolina because it is a seamless, we named, I just call it the continuum. Because you can come in here while you're in high school and you can be trained in a skill, welding, HVAC, you know, industrial maintenance. You can go that route while you're in high school. And by the time you get out of high school, you can have an associate's degree or, or certificates that allow you to immediately get a job. Or 
you can go in as a high school and take dual credits for college credit. And then you can go to Francis Marion, or you could go to Carolina, or you could go to Clemson out of there. Or you can come in and go straight into a Florence Darlington Tech program, one of their engineering programs. It is a seamless, flexible, doors open to all, high schools and adults, to come in and not have to go to different places. You come there, if you want to go here, you can be at Francis Marion, you can want to do something else, you can walk across and you're at Florence Darlington Tech. We've got a workforce around here, if given access to this kind of training and this kind of flexibility, that we can train. And we just opened and we've started our first classes and we've got 400 seated in there and I hope that this time five years from now we have to build another one because we ran out of space. And in your analysis, which I'm sure you have, have done a lot of analysis, are the jobs there then for the them? The jobs, we will recruit the jobs. I'll, all of our companies that are in this area are screaming for trained workers so we can add to the existing workforce. But what we also saw, what I thought would made sense is because of what is happening in Charleston, they don't have anywhere to go land-wise other than north out of Charleston and north up 52. And they're dying for labor. And I mean, just all the companies that have come into the Charleston area yes. and all the suppliers that have come in to support those companies, labor, labor, labor. And we are the next thing north of Charleston. So I looked at it with we can recruit some of those Charleston sub-suppliers to come up in here and we can train for them that then go, we're straight down to Charleston. We also got rail. We can spur off the rail and go straight down. I mean, this has been a long-term view. We are the natural next spot to start feeding Charleston with labor and also expanding labor for what we already have here and recruiting more in here. So, so it I, becomes a pipeline then to these jobs and right. these businesses that are and expanding. And as you, as you know, you can't do just one thing because everything is so interconnected. You've got to have a long view and be able to see that almost like a neural network in your own backyard of when you do one thing, the connectivity it has to everything else. But to be in a place where a kid can say in the ninth, 10th grade, I guess we take them 11th grade, I want to take a welding class, I want an HVAC, that's heating and air. All those guys are aging out now and that own those companies, they're aging out. And the ones that aren't are so overworked which is good because they're making a lot of money, but you've got to find a retired guy to come teach the kids that are going to come up behind this. But that's just one small area that is wide open. And the kid will come out of there making more right now than you will if you have a four-year degree. And that, that's some of this balanced stuff that you're going to see happen in higher ed. And why part of the crisis happening there is because it doesn't fit anymore. And what's that third decade? I don't know. I'll, I'll probably. Can we come back? And yeah, come back and <laughs> come back in about eight years. I'll okay. be able to see that third because I saw this second turn in about two years ago. Yeah, I can't see it quite yet, but I'm <laughs> sure. So that's what the next decade is. Just wanted to take you back for a moment. Was there a teacher who gave you inspiration along the way, either in elementary school or graduate school growing up? I had very good teachers for a small towns. Small, I, I came up in that period where the teachers that I had today 
would be sitting where you and I are. <laughs> Instead of being Mrs. You know, Joseph R. <laughs> you know, Jones, the high school English teacher. She would be an attorney or she would be a doctor Working. or she'd be in my seat. Yeah. So we had an extraordinary set of people, women and men, for the size of place we were. I do remember some distinctly, but the inspiration I got came actually from two other people. One was a friend of mine's mother who was part of the starting of the Republican Party in South Carolina. If you can ever imagine it wasn't here, it was not here at one time. <laughs> she and another guy are given credit for the two people. You couldn't have found a Republican if you'd beaten a bush at the time. And she started the Republican Party with another guy in South Carolina. But that had nothing to do with it. She was just, but just the way she would talk to me, there were no limitations about what you could do. It just wasn't ever part of the conversation. And she was extraordinarily well-read, and she had a tremendous influence on me. And just, I would sit and just talk with her, and she would talk about things, and you can do things. And, but we wouldn't talk about me. We would talk about other things, the world. And she was just an exceptional influence. And then I had a piano teacher, because I started to go that route into piano. So there were two women. What would your advice be for a young person today? I'm worried. I worry about the young person today. The advice I would have been able to give 10 years ago, I'm not as confident giving it today. I can give some general, but the, the, wor the world is so complex now. The digitization of the world and the impacts that are coming from all the technology. I look out and think, this is really going to be something to navigate life to navigate life through, because it's going to diffuse all the norms and all the foundations that any of us are used to. They will emerge, but in some form, some other form. But in general, what I, I think will hold through any generation is that you've got to take some risk. If you don't, you'll just tread in place and be, be okay with taking some risk. Be okay with failing. In fact, if you've can have a life with no fail, you will fail, you will have had a, a very unaccomplished life. Very unaccomplished. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, take the failures as great opportunities and great lessons. The older I get, the more I, integrity, whatever it takes, hang on to your integrity. That will hold you in good stead. In any situation. In any situation. We've talked a bit about politics, and 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote. Why is it important for women to vote? <laughs> well, it's, it's important that everybody votes, you know, everybody. But women, you know, particularly, I say particularly, the genders are sort of, you know, the division of labor that we would have known from our parents and some in our own lives. You know, all that's gone. So women are doing a lot better today than the men their age are doing in terms of just the quality of their lives, the direction they're taking. I've observed this. The ones that's coming up now in their 20s and 30s, you, you've read all the data. In, in many cases, they are the better students. They are the better workers. Women will be, play increasingly important roles in all leadership in this country and in the world. That's yet, why they ought to vote. <laughs> and, and yet there are those who would say that rights of women 
are being rolled back and that women still are very behind in the, in the pay, pay gap area. You can make an argument on both sides, but if you look at truly what's happening out in the workforce, in the mainstream workforce, I believe women will dominate increasingly in the power positions and decision-making positions because they're going to be better qualified. At the very top levels. At, We're at, talking about Fortune 500 CEOs. Yeah, well, they are, but also, I mean across the board, they're just doing better in school, they're staying in school, they're getting better educated, they're getting more opportunities because they can deliver. I mean, I see this, this is not across the board, but it's, it's more dominant in women. And I think these issues, they just have, they need to be vigilant about the rights being taken away. I think that I would predict that will not happen because I, I think there'll be such a wash of backlash it looks like heading in these directions, sure, but I think in the end, women will not let that, well, they won't let it happen. One of the issues that many women face today, and for years, is, is work-life balance, how to achieve that balance because of family life and work life. What is your advice for that, and how have you achieved that? Uh, it is a terrific dilemma. It's a terrific dilemma. Now, I didn't have children, but I had lots of friends who had children. And, and you cannot have everything, I do know that. You cannot do it. You can have a better division of labor if you have a partner, but you're not going to be able to have everything. And so you're gonna to have to look into your heart and say, at what stages of my life are my priorities going to be set out? Because as, as people live so much longer, you're gonna be able to do everything that you want to do. It's just you're not going to do them at once. At once. The idea of the superwoman then is, is gone. It was a foolish thing. It was a foolish thing. It's not possible. Work-life balance, I've seen some that tried to do it, and the outcomes either on children or marriages or they were not good. So it's just be realistic. Be realistic. Did you ever expect that women would be admitted into Augusta National and that you would be one of two? as the first? I never expected anything about Augusta National because I never thought about it. It was just <laughs> not on my radar. And when they came, Hugh McCall came here from, from Charlotte and sat in that chair right there and presented the proposition to me, I was shocked. I was shocked. I knew Hugh McCall. I knew Hootie Johnson. Hootie Johnson was actually a mentor of mine. And I came back into South Carolina. He and I were very good friends. But we were good banking friends. We were good project friends, political, you know, we were good friends. I didn't even think about him being an Augusta person. It just wasn't on my scan. Remember, I'm in New York City and I'm not playing golf a lot at all. <laughs> and so, but I knew these people well, because we had the university in common. We had lots of stuff. So when Hugh McCall came and asked if he wanted to sell me a membership, I think is how he put it. He was so charming. It was shocking to me. And, and how has it been? It's wonderful. It's been wonderful. Wearing that green jacket? The green jacket. And they tailored it up so it looks good on girls. <laughs> it looks, you know, they got to put a little tuck in it. We, we look very nice in them. They're, they're beautifully done. Uh, it's been a marvelous experience. It just has. It's such a, an indescribable place. 
it's, so much history. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So I have come to be deeply uh, humbled and appreciative of being part of it. You just can't believe the beauty of it. It's breathtaking. And it's like you've walked into a hologram. Uh, it's just not real. And now I understand there's a there's a women's tournament that's going to be part of it. Yes, they are. The, the uh, I think it's an amateur, yes. amateur yes. women's tournament, which is wonderful. And there are more female members now, so, other than Condoleezza and, and me. <laughs> and what does that say to young women, especially wonderful. interested in golf? It's what we were talking about earlier. If you're good enough and you work hard enough, you should be able to get close to where you want to be. You know, another honor is your name on the Darla Moore School of Business. That must have been something as well. That, that was, and that was, um, it's an enormous responsibility. It's not about adulation and recognition. It's this nice, I'm, I'm happy to be able to represent women in business and have only business school in American name for a woman. I'm deeply honored to be in that position. But at the same time, it is a massive responsibility to make sure that you are providing a quality product to the people who are paying you tuition to come there and get a degree. You have got to take that extremely seriously. And, and you take that seriously. Deadly. They come in, the student, the parents, they pay us an arm and a leg to teach them, to give them a degree that is of value for them to you know, thrive and succeed in their lives. And if we don't do that, I think it's about as the most dishonorable thing that possibly happen. So yes, I work a lot on that business school. It didn't turn out to be, I thought it would just be really nice. I have my name on a big pretty building and my nice portrait hanging in the foyer. It's real pretty. It's <laughs> There's a lot more. There's a lot more than that. You keep tabs on the whole uh, university too, as, I do. as witnessed by that recent the president school. search. And yeah, I do keep tabs on everything. And uh, we're, in a, you know, the university's in a in a difficult. We're going through a difficult period. It will come out of it. We will power our way through. But it's a it's a difficult time. It's a difficult time in higher ed in the whole country and it is going to transform radically over the next decade. And there'll be universities in our state um, that will be deeply impacted by the changes that are coming and the, the competition and the pressure that's going to be put on all of our universities. I read that you, you said that giving away money is harder than making money. The worst, the <laughs> worst. <laughs> in terms of, Stress, because you want it's to do the right, right thing. Stress. The, well, the, you, you so want to do the right thing. You know, wanting to make a deal good or make, make a profit and all that, that, that's ambition, that's drive, that's all this stuff. Now that you got there, the responsibility you feel towards the people you're trying to help, it's, it's a whole, it shifts your whole mentality and your whole worldview. It's because philanthropy is investing. I mean, I've invested massively in this state. It crosses my mind sometimes whether, oh boy, have I done the right thing. But that's what I mean by the, the sense of responsibility. I, I am long South Carolina. And, and finally, South Carolina is your home state. 
What do you think about this state and where it's going as a state? I'm schizophrenic about it. <laughs> On the one hand, we have so much going for us. I mean, we're staggering. We talked about assets earlier, about Lake City and assets. This state has such assets, natural and character and everything, such assets. But we have just not taken advantage as I think we should have and could have, and we're not the only state that can say that. We are, there is such a dearth of leadership in this country and in this state and in the communities. I can only think that women, as they come into those roles, will make, can make things better. I think we need more of our women in government and political positions. But I am schizophrenic. On the one hand, I think we're just the most, this is the most romantic, idyllic place on the face of the earth. And the next day, I'm enraged, just enraged by the, what I consider, you know, some move that I didn't like <laughs> or didn't agree with. So I, I have a volatile life down here, <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> I have emotionally volatile. It keeps it interesting. It does. Thank you very much, You're Donna so Moore. welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on Know It All and SCETV.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us.